This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Jesse Puji, and today we're breaking down the Walt Disney Company. Walt Disney needs no introduction. We've all interacted with the entertainment empire in some capacity. It was founded 100 years ago as the Disney Brothers Cartoon Studio, and over the ensuing century, the business has grown into a conglomerate of entertainment properties that include the likes of Pixar, Marvel, Disneyland, ESPN, National Geographic, and Disney+. To explain how this business fits together, I'm joined once again by Ben Weiss, the Chief Investment Officer of Ethan Jackson. We talk about Disney's famous flywheel, its push into streaming, and why it's such a difficult business to manage. Please enjoy this business breakdown of Disney. All right, Ben Weiss, welcome back to Business Breakdowns. Great to be back. We are talking about probably one of my favorite companies in the world for so many reasons, Disney. I'm sure most people know what it is, but for maybe those who don't know or those who don't know at the depths of what it is, can you just walk us through what is Disney, talk about the scale of the business in whatever terms make sense, and give us the quick overview. Yeah, it's fascinating because I think when most people think of Disney, they think of two things, which are one, characters and stories from movies that they love, that they grew up with, that their kids watch. And then the second thing is theme parks. And those are both big components of the business. But when you actually look into Disney as a company, there are lots of other components to it, lots of other assets that are there that people don't necessarily associate with the company. So a quick overview in uh, fiscal year 2022, Disney generated $82.7 billion in total revenue in 2022, did close to $12 in EBITDA and $3 billion in net income. That financial performance is spread across several different segments of the business. The main ones are the Disney parks experience and products, which is the theme parks and the consumer products the box office, which is Disney's revenue from theatrical movies, the linear networks, which is the collection of cable networks and the broadcast network ABC that Disney owns, which include the Disney Channel, ESPN, FX, and the streaming business, which is Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, and Hulu. So it's a big diversified company across many sectors of entertainment. And those four divisions you talked through, Is there any rough sense for scale across them? Like what's the biggest revenue part of the business? The two biggest parts of the business are the parks experience and products, which last year was close to 29 billion in revenue and about 8 billion in segment operating margin. The linear networks business, which is the channels that we discussed earlier, which is close to 28 billion in revenue and about $8 billion in segment profit. So those are the two biggest parts of the company, which might be counterintuitive because the conception of Disney, which is true, which is that the movies are really the driver of the company. And they are, because that's where they generate intellectual property that they're able to then monetize across 
many different points of distribution. But the two biggest parts of the company are the parks business and then the linear networks business. And the linear networks business might be the piece that comes as a bit of a surprise to people. Disney has a large, profitable cable networks and broadcast networks business that generates a lot of income for the company. I want to go two different places. First, just a brief history of the company as you understand. And I think specifically, I'd love to hear obviously a little bit of the origin story, which I think a lot of people know. But then what are some of the big milestones that took place that have led it into being this diversified business? And then I have another follow-up to that. This is the 100th year anniversary of the company, which is a miracle of business for any company to make it. You know, five years is a miraculous feat for a business to last for 100 years. Tells you something about the culture and the durability of what Disney has sold, which over time has been great stories. The company was founded in 1923 by Walt Disney and his brother Roy as the Disney Brothers Cartoon Company. I think the big milestones that people might point to are in 1928 was Mickey Mouse was created, maybe the most indelible character in the Disney canon. 1937 was the first animated movie, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. 1955 was when Disneyland opened. That was the beginning of what I would argue might be the greatest vacation and travel franchise in the world. And that's since expanded all over, obviously, the Orlando business, and then they have parks in Asia and Europe. And then the two... I think periods of history that are most studied today and investors really can learn a lot from and follow are the Michael Eisner years, which were 84 to the early 2000s, and a lot of important developments and evolution in the business during Michael Eisner's tenure as CEO. And then the Bob Iger years, which started in 2005. Obviously, this is a big company. There's a lots of talented executives that have contributed to the growth and development of Disney, but it might be easy as a shorthand to just think about those two eras. So you think about the evolution of entertainment from sound and color and broadcast television, cable television, the internet. Disney has not only lasted and survived all of those changes, but it's really thrived. They've grown a lot by acquisition. You mentioned, obviously, the parks that started in 1955. And by the way, there's an amazing documentary on Disney Plus about the parks, if you've ever seen it. It talks a lot about how big of a bet it was for Walt Disney and how crazy it seemed at the time. I highly recommend it. But when did they buy ABC? ABC Cap Cities was 96 or 7. That was a huge acquisition that Michael Eisner really architected. And in that acquisition, they ended up with ESPN, which became really one of the core profit drives of the business since they bought it. So that was, I think, 96, 97. And then the other big acquisitions, which are maybe a little more well-known were Pixar, Marvel, and Lucas. Pixar was 2006, Marvel's 2009, and Lucas was 2012. We'll go into each of those in a little bit more depth and detail shortly. The other question I want to ask you, you know, you mentioned Mickey Mouse. I have a seven and a five-year-old, both who love and know Mickey Mouse. My daughter loves Snow White, and they're 100 years old. So it really points to how unique of a franchise they've built. There's that famous image of their flywheels before it was a thing even. I'll put it in the show notes so people can see it. Can you talk through it a little bit just so people can truly appreciate and understand how it compounds on top of itself? Yeah, it starts with stories and characters that build deep emotional connections with consumers that really transcend geography, age, and generation. And I think this is thing that's 
known about Disney, but maybe not well understood, is how hard it is to develop the capability to tell great stories that transcend time, that make people of all ages want to connect to those characters through visits to Disney World or through purchases of consumer products. So it starts with very talented storytellers at the Walt Disney Company, creating worlds, creating characters, often from scratch, that are able to mean something to people and connect with them in a way that really stays with them. Through that, they're able to then build several different businesses around the great storytelling, as we said, the parks, entire cable networks, consumer products, toys, merchandise that people want to buy so they can own a piece of the world or be closer to the character. And that really is a model that I'm not aware of any other company has been able to replicate at the scale and for as long as Disney. It's extremely hard to do because great storytelling entails creative risk-taking, takes a long time to do it. There's no formula. It's not like manufacturing soap where you can just sort of modify defects. People that are telling the stories really know how to, over time, create characters that mean something. It's a unique competitive advantage that Disney has that gives life to incredible businesses across the company. And as an investor, when you think about the competitive markets that they play in, how do you characterize their different competitors and their different businesses? Well, they compete broadly for time with any entertainment company that wants to earn your time. I think it's a big, broad competitive set. It's not just 20 years ago, it was maybe other cable networks for ratings and then other movies, studios for box office, but it's really for time and attention. So I think that's the first place to start. So you have to be able to break through what has become an increasingly crowded and noisy media market with really impactful stories. They're one of the best in the world at that, maybe the best in the world at it. And then they're competing for discretionary income, I think broadly with other companies that have hotels, that have cruises. Disney has a big cruise business that's selling you toys. It's not like they're the only company in the market, but what they've been able to do as we said with the great storytelling, is break through that noise and offer something that people really connect to emotionally that makes them want to go on these vacations, buy the toys, and share these experiences with their families. When you think about competition or like if you look at them versus comps, how does that show up? Does it show up as higher margins in their business or does it show up as more scale? Well, the parks business, as we said, $28 billion in revenue, close to $8 billion profit close to 27% operating segment margin, that would tell you that they have the ability to price competitively and sell a lot of merchandise and food at their parks at high margin. That's a great margin on its own. And then the licensing business, which they don't break out separately, I don't believe anymore, is also a high return on capital, high margin business because they're licensing their trademark for other companies to make toys, to make shirts, to make products. And Disney just collects a royalty on those sales. So the margins on that business have been really good. Disney has great shelf space with retailers. They are an extremely powerful consumer products company, maybe the most powerful. So they have really broad, good distribution. And that's another just high margin piece of the business. The cable networks and the linear networks, it's a little different. It wasn't really competitive like a substitution market for a long time because there are 100 million houses roughly in the United States that were subscribing to cable. Disney had a big broad set of channels where they were commanding high fees from the distributors and they were getting good advertising revenue. So that was a high margin business, very high margin, maybe close to 40%. But 
but so were the other cable networks. So it wasn't really substitution. So across the business, you see it really high margins because either Disney has unique scale or they have differentiated products. I want to double click into these different businesses and really paint the pictures of their PLs and then talk about how they interact with each other. We'll take one at a time. The parks business, what are the costs of sales in that business? Or how do you think about that? And then talk a little bit about how they get those operating margins, but also there's a big investment, I assume, that shows up underneath EBITDA. It is capital intensive because you have to maintain the parks. There's a lot of equipment, a lot of rides, takes a lot of people to operate the parks. Disney invested $3.4 billion in CapEx in the parks segment in 2022, or about 12% of sales. So that's not an investment that other companies are easily able to make. I mean, there's only really two global theme park companies I'm aware of. So high barrier to entry, that high barrier to entry combined with Disney's unique intellectual property allows them to generate really good margins in the parks. They've expanded that business. They have Shanghai Disney, they have Tokyo Disneyland, they have the Disney parks business in the United States. And it's been defensible over time. The basic formula to grow it is more attendance and higher price per customer. You have to balance not making the tickets too expensive or the merchandise and the food too expensive that people don't go. But over time, the appeal of going to a Disney park has been pretty durable. I would expect that to continue in the future as long as they're able to continue to tell great stories and create innovative new experiences in the parks, which they've been able to do. Are there cost of sales? I mean, obviously there's food maybe, but for when I buy a ticket, is there any cost of sales attached to that? Well, they have to manage ticketing platforms, what they do internally versus outsource. I think I'm not sure that they go into a lot of detail about that. They have increasingly built technology that allows attendees to the park to have a better experience. Fast pass, you can pay to skip lines. So there is some maintenance to that. I think labor, again, is a big expense in the park. You have to have a lot of people in the park to make it run well, to provide great entertainment, to make sure the rides are working. So the variable cost on the marginal ticket is probably low, but the fixed operating costs to run a park are pretty substantial. And then when you think about a park, let's talk about an individual park first. Obviously, on a Tuesday, whether there's 10 people in the park or 10 million or some number, the costs are the same. Can you talk about the fixed cost aspect and then how to think about volume, like in incrementally EBITDA margins? I think you said it well. The costs don't scale proportionally with attendance during busy times of the year. You would presume that there would be added costs just to manage the increased capacity, make sure everything is functioning and working smoothly. Given that a lot of the costs are fixed, if you have a really good economy, which I think right now there's definitely an appetite for travel, and you're providing good experiences in the park, not only on the rides, but uh, merchandise and food, very high incremental margin business. I assume the primary growth driver in that business is more parks. Are there ways they drive growth, sort of same store growth, if you will, in the current parks? Ticket pricing would be one. If you look at the kind of adjusted for inflation prices of Disney's tickets to the parks over time, I don't know, but I think it's increased more than inflation. They've had a lot of pricing power. So if you just kept the attendance flat and increase the ticket prices, your revenue will go up. They have found other ways to increase spend per customer, great merchandise, great toys, features that allow you to maybe have a more premium experience in the park. So the same sort component is increased pricing on the tickets and then increased per capita spend by offering products and services in the park that people are willing to pay for. Not sure that increasing the number of parks 
is actually the real growth driver. They've done that thoughtfully over time. You can imagine like what would go into being able to open a new park. It's a new massive undertaking in every way. So there aren't that many places around the world that would make sense for a Disney park. You got to it easy international travel. You got to have the right real estate. But one of the big things they've done over the last, I would say, 10 years, and this speaks to the Disney flywheels, they've added new attractions in the park that fans of the IP must come to see. The Millennium Falcon, which part of Star Wars, I think they've just opened a big new avatar world. And that creates excitement. That gives people a new reason to go to the park. And the innovation there on the next rider attraction, being able to use modern technology, really creates a differentiated experience that can drive the park business. Let's talk about the cable business next. It's obviously a completely different business. So what's the PL look like? And what are the drivers of growth and success in that part of the business? Yeah, completely different business. Well said. Last year is about $28 billion in revenue, $8.5 billion in segment operating profit. It's comprised of a collection of television networks, brands that most people are familiar with, ABC, Broadcast Network, ESPN, several different versions of Disney Channel, Disney Junior, Disney XD, FX, some other channels. And the cable business in the United States was really one of the great businesses, I think, that I've studied over the last 20 years. It was a business that at scale, you had very low customer acquisition costs because you had a captive customer base that were subscribing to cable and satellites. There wasn't a lot of marketing in the P&L, the cable channels. And you were monetizing fixed programming costs over 100 million roughly households. Whether 100 million households wanted your network or not, because as the market consolidated around a few big media companies, they went to the distributors, cable and satellite companies, they're going to have to take all our networks or none. And those networks got distributed under a million houses, which not only created very efficient return on their content spend, but allowed them to create very large advertising businesses because they were reaching roughly 100 million US houses. So that had 40% or so operating margins, which is an incredible business, very high returns on incremental capital. And for a long time was one of, if not the most reliably profitable and consistent business inside of Disney. That's obviously changing now with what's going on in the world as entertainment shifts to the internet and consumers adopt streaming. But that was a wonderful business for Disney for a long time. It still remains a wonderful business. What was Sony cable operator having to pay Disney per sub? Those numbers are hard to find. They're not generally broken out because these distributors and the cable networks like to keep those negotiations private. I've seen estimates that ESPN, which I think is the highest per sub network of any network, they call it an affiliate fee. So the fees that the cable and satellite companies were paying for ESPN could have been $7 to $8 per subscriber, which is a lot. There were not, I don't think, 100 million households that would have chosen to get ESPN, but Disney was getting paid $7 to $8 per sub on ESPN per month, and then also generating advertising revenue. Truly one of the great businesses you know, the last probably 50 years was ESPN, whether people wanted it or not. So they had a lot of market power. And for the households that value live sports, they had to have ESPN because ESPN had so many valuable sports rights. Yeah. So that was just this incredible subscription machine that they were going out and building. The streaming business, obviously Disney Plus, and they have some other assets there. Is that considered to be part of that or it's just a separate division when they talk about it? 
They've broken it out separately. I think they want investors to value, or at least they did over the last several years, to look at and value the streaming business separate from the linear networks business for a few reasons. One, it was in growth mode. They were investing in a way that the business was not profitable. I think last year, the streaming segment of Disney's business did about $19 billion in revenue and lost negative $4 billion operating profit. So it was a growing business. They were investing to build their subscriber base, build out the technology. But the market was putting a premium on growing streaming businesses, given that was seen as the future of entertainment, I think, by many. And certainly, it was seen as a replacement to the linear model. So they broke it out separate, and they've made some investments there. The market has changed a little bit in terms of how willing it is to underwrite losses in streaming and how enthusiastic investors may be about the profitability of the streaming business. But it's been a separate business. You and I did Netflix together a month or so ago, and we talked about how that Netflix business is now profitable and will get more profitable. What's different about Disney Plus? I mean, twenty billion is a lot of revenue. What does that PL look like and why are they losing money? The two reasons that I think they're losing money are there's a big investment in technology that needs to be made to provide, as we talked about this a lot on the Netflix podcast, a great streaming experience for customers. So you have to build out the tech infrastructure to operate a consistent, smooth, user-friendly streaming experience. And it's expensive. It's a big fixed cost investment. Netflix made that investment for many years. And so Disney was in the process of doing that. And then you have to invest also in content ahead to build a subscriber base. So if you think about the lead times on big budget movies and television shows, of which Disney has a lot, let's just say for Disney Plus, they're building out their library of new Star Wars television shows, Marvel shows, you have to lay out the capital up front, often several years up front with no corresponding revenue to order to build the business. So those two areas of investment, and I think they are investment. I think there will be a great return over time for Disney on those expenses, cause the business to run operating losses for some period of time. I thought when we talked about a Netflix land, that content was considered actually a capital investment that they depreciated. Is that not the same for Disney or am I misremembering? No, that's right. You're amortizing some of the content spend based on viewing and based on if you're licensing when you have rights. Disney's not really licensing a lot of content, although you do license from your studio. So there's an amortization expense as the content comes on the service, is available, and is viewed. In, in that competitive landscape, you've got Netflix, you've got them. Are they number two to Netflix? How does the world look at their competitive position there? Disney Plus has about 46.6 million domestic subscribers. 161 million, 162 million globally. That includes a big business in India, which they got when they acquired Fox called Hotstar. So Disney, across all of its streaming assets, ESPN Plus, Hulu, and Disney Plus has more subscribers than Netflix. Netflix is 231 million and Disney's above that. They don't have the same ARPU numbers on their streaming business that Netflix has. And obviously, as we just said, it's not profitable. But I think investors believe that Disney is one of the main competitors to Netflix. I don't think they're substitutes, but it's definitely one of the main competitors and one of the companies that is likely to be a long-term winner in streaming given the IP that they own and the scale that the streaming business has already built. But it's not as profitable as Netflix, and it doesn't have the ARPU that Netflix has, and it also doesn't have, based on publicly available viewing numbers, the engagement that Netflix has. 
So Disney has some work to do to build a streaming business that is generating the same levels of viewing and the same levels of profit as the market leader, which today is Netflix. Do they have any plans to do? Obviously, they know they do original content, but they sort of do their formulaic version, whereas Netflix is putting out the Murdoch murders and these things that start to become part of the conversation. That I haven't experienced that personally. Do they have any plans to do that? I think you hit on a really interesting strategic question, which investors are wrestling with right now, which is how far can Disney extend its content offering without diluting or in any way degrading the Disney brand, which really stands for, I think, wholesome family entertainment. It's a tough question, and I'm sure the people at Disney internally are wrestling with this question because on the one hand, to build a streaming service that appeals to all members of the household and drives as much engagement as possible, you need a lot of variety. And you can't just have, I don't think, tentpole shows based on a few franchises, even though those franchises are incredibly popular and valuable and people are deeply passionate about them. You need a broad suite of programming, but Disney's going to have to balance that competitive need with maintaining a brand promise that has served the company really well over a long period of time of entertainment that's accessible really to everybody in the house and that doesn't have the same maybe edginess or isn't as provocative as some of the shows, let's say, on Netflix. So they will figure out over time, I think, what they need to do to make sure that the streaming offering is comprehensive, but also consistent with the values of the Disney brand. That begets another question, which is whether they should have several different streaming services. Well, not several, but a few, let's say Hulu and Disney Plus, or whether they should consolidate them into a one-stop shop or sell Hulu and just put all of their content on Disney Plus. There's different opinions on that in the investor community, and I don't know that there's a right answer to it, but the next several years, I think, will probably force some of those decisions. They do have a variety of different offerings. I kind of forgot about Hulu, but Hulu is a thing. Is it a whole other animal? It is a whole other animal, and I'm not sure that Hulu has defined a clear brand identity. Personally, I think there's some credible shows on Hulu, but I don't know that Hulu's original programming lately has broken through culturally, certainly not in the way Netflix has. So they'll have some decisions to make with Hulu that's actually kind of topical because they own 67% and we'll see if Comcast sells them the other piece that they don't own or if they want to sell it. And Hulu is also just domestic, which I think over the next five to 10 years for a streaming service to really be an impactful part of Disney's p it's probably going to have to be a global business. But Hulu on its own has a big subscriber base. They built a really big, maybe the leading so far connected television advertising business And it has allowed Disney to have a platform for edgier content, maybe more adult content that doesn't naturally fit on Disney+. Plus. Last but not least, let's talk about, I guess, the last part of their business is the movie studio and the movie business. What does that business look like from a P&L perspective? And what are the big levers for how they grow it? They're by far the leading company in terms of box office. And one of the defining chapters of Bob Iger's tenure was to just cement Disney's lead in global box office by creating real event IP event movies that got people out of the house that were extremely well-made that fans cared about. So the business is close to $5 billion box office. There's a big marketing expense with each new movie. It costs about the same to market a movie now as it does to produce one. So As a standalone business, it's profitable, but the real money historically has come from the downstream licensing 
of DVD, you license a movie while they sell them a DVD, you license the movie to cable networks, to broadcast networks, and that's all high incremental margin business because there isn't an associated cost with that. So the box office has been, as a standalone, a big revenue generator and good profit generator, but it's been an incredible licensing business at high margin up until probably fairly recently. That's changed a little bit where Disney's able to monetize its movies over and over in different channels around the world. And I think obviously going back to the flywheel conversation, I'm curious. I mean, I'm a Disney expert because of my kid's age, but you know, Encanto comes out, super awesome movie or Raya, Raya and the Last Dragon. That obviously comes through the movie team, I assume. That sits in their PNL. Yes, as far as I understand it. But then obviously on Disney Plus, it pops up in the parks. My daughter's like, oh, I got to go see Moana. Do you think about that as an investor? Do they actually quantify that in some meaningful way? A great way to illustrate the power of it, so it's not going to answer the precise question of how the cost may be allocated to P&L, but let's take a movie that Disney created whole cloth is actually Pixar Cars, you know, adventure animation comedy. So that movie is released in 2006, probably took four years at least to develop the movie. Ed Catmull, who was one of the founders of Pixar, who wrote one of the best business books I've ever read called Creativity Inc., talks about Pixar's creative process. So Cars comes out in 2006. It's an hour and 57 minutes, that movie. Costs a reported $120 million to make, probably cost the same to market that. So let's say it's close to $200 million. Disney has invested in the movie between the production and the marketing. In box office, domestically, it does $244 million in revenue. Wide, it does $460 million in revenue. $8 a ticket they're selling. There's some repeat business. 5 million tickets, which is incredible if you think about the amount of people globally that have been exposed to the characters and stories. And then downstream, they're able to monetize the movie through the sale of DVD and Blu-ray. It was reported $314 million they made there. And then they license the movie over and over, as we said, to cable networks, broadcast networks around the world at high incremental margin. The original car spawns two sequels. The global box office is at $1.4 billion, And the merchandise sales at retail reported to be over $10 billion. I think it's probably way more than that. And the IP is also leveraged to create Cars Land at Disneyland, which was the anchor of a five-year investment in roughly $1.1 billion. Raw creative output, this story that was developed and release the public an hour and 57 minutes, spawns a truly global franchise that includes DVDs, movies, theme park ride, and merchandise. Maybe even more important, secures valuable emotional real estate in the minds of consumers around the world. And I don't think there's a better representation of the power of the Disney flywheel than kind of looking at this movie and then what it has birth for the Disney company. And they've been able to do that over and over again. Yeah. Lightning McQueen. Lightning McQueen for the win. I assume they have attractions at the parks that then little kids say, I want to go, I want to go to the cars thing. And that creates some stir, sell some tickets. You think about what the psychology behind that, that there's a story that's so good or so meaningful to the viewer that it compels kids, it compels adults to say, I want to get on an airplane, travel some distance to actually physically get closer to these characters and have a tangible experience. I mean, it's truly amazing. And I think as a parent, you know, I've lived it. And I think once you've lived it, it's really poignant. 
my daughter, we went to Hawaii randomly and she said, I'm going to meet Moana here. And we had never been to the Disney resort. We were staying at a different resort and we went to that Disney resort. There was a Moana makeover where she got made to look like Moana. And then Moana came and greeted her and she was on cloud nine. My wife was crying because it was such a moment. And then immediately I was like, man, I should get a Disney vacation thing and I should get Disney Plus as soon as I get home. You're on to something if your brand and your products move someone to happy tears. Probably a good thing. There aren't that many companies that can say that. I want to talk about the recent leadership stuff in a more forward-looking context. Before we do that, what's the culture and the leadership? like? How do they run a business like this? It just seems like you really have to be thoughtful and intentional and connect all these dots all the time and build that into the way the, the business operates and the culture. Talk a little bit about that. I think it's almost like running a small country and the characteristics that the CEO needs are unique to run Disney versus a lot of other companies, given all the constituencies that a Disney leadership really serves. You need to be able to serve creative talent. You have shareholders. You have a very large employee base. You have local governments. There's currently, I think, a little bit of a tiff with the state of Florida over land zoning there. And you have consumers. So I think the broad set of people that Disney as a company serves and Disney leadership has to be catered to is unique among businesses that at least that I've studied. There's a certain type of leadership that's required to do that well. One of the reasons you could argue they haven't been able to have that many different CEOs in the last 25 years, they really only had two, because it's hard to find somebody who can do it well. Are there hallmarks or cultural value? Storytelling clearly is one of them, but are there other ones inside the organization that you think have led them to be able to do this successfully? You have to believe that Disney embraces creative risk-taking in a way that most companies are not comfortable doing. So we touched on this a little bit, but to invest $150, $250 million in a movie to spend the money well before you have a product that's commercialized, that takes a certain culture to be able to underwrite that type of risk. And it doesn't always work. And when it doesn't work financially, it can be very painful. So culturally, you have to embrace creative risk-taking the messiness that comes with that is not something that can be necessarily systematized, as we said, or modulated. It's really something that is unique to storytelling companies of which Disney is one. I think Disney also has balanced maintaining a real focus on profitability and doing things that generate good returns on capital for shareholders with growth and investing in new areas of the business. And that's not something that's easy to do, especially for a 100-year-old company when there's a lot of shareholders that want predictability, they want a dividend, they want capital return. They're not as excited about a company that's making investments in new areas of technology because of the risk. But Disney has balanced that really well. And I think they should be commended for that. I think that's totally right. I want to talk about the bull and the bear case here for them. I think maybe to start, let's talk about the recent leadership transition. What happened there? Why do you think it happened? And as an investor, what's your perspective on it? Not sure exactly what happened. You can read a lot of media reports, but I don't know that those are accurate to go off. From my perspective, I thought the CEO who succeeded Bob Iger, Bob Chapik, was doing a really good job. I think he was focused on the right areas of the business and right areas of investment. There was maybe a difference of opinion among the Disney board and certain Disney shareholders were not happy with the losses that were piling up in streaming. And so Bob Iger who generally is regarded probably as one of the best CEOs of the last 20 years, which I would agree with, came back in November for what's stated to be a two-year term to help Disney manage 
the transition to the business mainly again from linear to streaming. What was reported internally as a problem was maybe the creative community and some of the creative talent felt alienated or not cared for in certain decisions that were made in the company. And Bob Iger has made it a real priority to refocus on creative excellence and working constructively with talent to produce the best content. He is a phenomenal CEO, somebody who's really worth studying because he's got unique, I think, attributes that you don't find. One of them is he is a risk taker, calculated risk taker, but certainly a risk taker. And Disney has benefited tremendously from the acquisitions that he's done. And also, he's just a person who works well with lots of different types of people and groups of people. And as we said earlier, that's important for Disney. One of the hallmarks of his tenure I wanted to spend a bit of time on is the M&A. Maybe we can pick one, Marvel, or whichever one you're most familiar with from a case study perspective and say, what happened there? How did it get going? Why did they decide to buy it? And then what's it look like in terms of returns for the business for shareholders? Yeah, it's hard to even pick one because there's so many great ones. But Marvel might be the acquisition that was the least intuitive, that's built the most value for the business. The deal was done in 2009. Marvel has a very fascinating corporate history. And there are a lot of big, interesting investors, owners of Marvel when Disney bought it. But I think Bob Iger recognized early that however the world evolved, however technology evolved, the value of great intellectual property was going to grow. And he saw in the Marvel library just truly incredible characters and IP that was differentiated and bought the company. And then he was able, which I think was the other key insight, to leverage Disney's unique distribution, theme parks, consumer products, cable channels to get these great stories and characters in front of consumers in a way that was going to mean something to consumers. So Marvel, over $20 billion in the box office, a global franchise, one of the key linchpins of the streaming business, the Marvel library and new Marvel television shows. And I'm not aware of any content brand that has had as successful a run as Marvel at the box office. The output has just been consistently excellent. They've brought really great people into work on developing the characters and the stories. And whereas the theatrical business has generally been regarded as unpredictable and risky, Marvel has just transcended that and been able to consistently generate billion-dollar franchises and make great movies that then give life to all these other things inside of Disney. Have you or has anybody else out there actually tried to quantify? I don't remember. What did they pay for it? And what do people think it's worth today? Don't remember the acquisition price. It's definitely worth multiples of what they paid. At the time, Marvel, I mean, it's hard to think about this, but Marvel was not producing movies consistently at the scale that is now started with Iron Man, which I believe was nine or 10, and then just went on an incredible run. But Disney bought something that was really just comic books and a collection of IP that did not have broadly distributed revenue across multiple categories. The business certainly didn't have movies. So I'm sure people have done this. I'm not sure it's easy to quantify the value for the Disney company, but it's immense and certainly it's worth multiples of what they paid for it. So looking forward, you know, in the next 10 years, let's talk about the bull case where it's like Disney becomes the next trillion dollar company or something crazy like that. What happened? What did they get really right? And what happened kind of in the marketplace? The streaming business, Disney Plus, became a very large, durable, profitable segment of the company. 
I've always thought about as a baseline to value Disney Plus, are there 200 million households that would pay $15 a month for Disney content, access to the movies and characters that they love, that they grew up loving, that their kids love? And I think the answer is like a resounding yes to that. Now the service has to be great. The streaming experience has to be really good, but the content is there. So that would be a roughly a $36 billion business. And that's a software business, which should be predictable. It should have recurring revenue and at scale should have really high margins because you don't need to, or you shouldn't need to invest in incremental content to maintain a large base of subs if you're providing them with a great value and a great service. So that would be, you know, $36 billion business. And if they could approximate the margins of the cable business, I think it can. That's roughly $14 billion in EBIT. People can put their own multiple on it. But that business alone, I think, could be worth $200, $250 billion if they got there. And that's roughly the EV of Disney today. Now it's going to take time. But I think that's a baseline to me given how much people value the Disney brand, how much they love the movies and the shows and how connected they are to the IP. I do not think that if they invest in the service and they make it great and they commit to growing Disney Plus that those targets are unreachable. I think that they're conservative. The big question is, are they going to do it? I would have answered yes up until last year, but the market has changed and there's much more of a focus right now on current profitability, on return of capital, on managing for slower growth. And a lot of investors in Disney are calling for that. There's a big activist that's involved. I don't know if that's the right long-term decision. I don't know if you can just turn on investment when the market changes, or if you really need to invest through the cycle to make sure that five or 10 years from now, they've done everything they can to build and sustain a profitable streaming company. I'm assuming streaming is really going to continue to grow versus linear. So we'll see. But I think if they commit I think if they make it a corporate priority, then Disney Plus will be a very large, durable, profitable part of the company. And it will replace the profits that they're going to lose in the cable network business. Are there other big things that come to mind around how they would outperform what anyone's expecting? You could imagine that, and this is probably well into the future, there would be experiences, interactive experiences, maybe virtual reality, augmented reality. This may be part of Disney Plus that take fans and viewers deeper into these very evocative worlds that just create new opportunities for Disney to monetize that IP, whether it's transactions in these worlds, whether it's higher subscription prices, whether it's upselling premium features or experiences through an internet service. So it would be tied, I think, to Disney Plus or their streaming business, but you just create more depth there based on how technology advances in a way that creates new profit streams and very high margin profits for Disney. And what about the flip? If in 10 years, it's a God forbid, because I love Disney, but it's a shell of its former self, what happened? The streaming business was not able to offset the declining cable networks business. So for whatever reason, Disney lacks the organizational will, the technological scale to go execute against building streaming. I think that would be the only thing that I can think of that would really impair the business or prevent the company from being worth more, let's say 10 years from now. And they face sort of an innovator's dilemma, which is they have an extremely profitable declining cable networks business in a market where people value the current profitability of that business very highly. And they have a less certain money losing, more speculative, less tested growth business that 
depending on who you ask, is either the future of the company or will not be as economic as linear. If they don't grow it and it ends up being really important and it's just sort of a secondary option for consumers or it doesn't really have the cultural or economic impact that I think it can have, then there's a risk to that. I've always thought of it this way. If you imagine a world where the only place you can access Disney content is through a Disney branded service, that's it. You have to be a subscriber, to, let's just say to Disney Plus, to get access to the movies, the characters, the experiences that you love. I think there's so much value in that. And I think there is way more opportunity ahead for Disney than there is risk, but they have to seize it. And that is a simple premise, but it's very complicated to execute because you have, as we've discussed, several other lines of business, movies and cable networks that are profitable. And you would have to forsake some of that profitability to put all of the content, the highest value content behind a Disney branded paywall and then operate that service in a way that keeps people subscribing. There are very few brands in the world that have the power to do that. I think Nike's probably one in the shift to direct to consumer has really benefited their business. Disney is probably another, but it's not a foregone conclusion that will happen. It's going to have to happen because the company decides that it's a strategic priority. And then over 20 years, making sure that all of their best content is accessible only through Disney services, not anywhere else, which is a controversial position in entertainment, that's going to have to be the reality. So we'll see. The last few questions here, we always ask everyone, what's the lesson for operators or for business builders out there from Disney? You can add a lot of value through great acquisitions. I'm not sure that's the only lesson. I think working with creative talent and making sure you have an environment where people feel free to fail and the risk of failure is tolerated is really important when you're in a storytelling company. But the common wisdom I think is that acquisition, which is true, acquisitions can create a lot of risk culturally, financially. Often they destroy more value than they create. And Disney has been the exception to that. So you might need the talented people like a Michael Eisner or a Bob Iger to spot those deals and understand what they can do for a company. But Disney without acquisition, you imagine and they never bought ABC Cap Cities and never bought Marvel, Pixar, or Lucas. I mean, that's just a different company. And it was not predetermined that, that was going to happen. That took foresight by the people running the company to say, we can grow these assets, we can build value in these assets, and they can create a stronger company. Yeah, there's something too for me around culture and the fact that they recognize the importance of storytelling at the heart of what the company is because they went and bought these businesses that also had that, to your point, characters and stories at the heart of their business. And then they found out ways to make money. Absolutely. You either have religion on that or you don't. It's sort of an intangible aspect of the company to really get into like, what does it mean to tell great stories? And how do you build a company and a culture that is able to do that consistently over time? And it's hard to evaluate. It's not necessarily a quantitative analysis. It's probably a lot more qualitative. Who are the people you work with? What environment do you create them to work? But yes, they recognize the value of iconic IP that is able to support value in the company and new businesses across the company over many years, more than any company I think has. Again, they've just done a great job executing. So you can have wonderful IP, but if you don't have great directors and producers and writers that are able to make content that people care about and that people really love, that IP is not going to be as valuable. And Disney's done both. What's the big lesson for investors from Disney Story? I think don't glamorize the past. There's a lot of investors that are seduced by just the Disney brand and the legacy of Disney, which is an incredible legacy, an unbelievable history. Maybe you could argue it's one of the greatest brands in the world. You probably make an argument is the single most valuable brand in the world. But that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to build 
and defend a more profitable company in the future. You really have to think about what investments, what capabilities, what technology is going to be required over 10 to 20 years, particularly in dynamic markets such as entertainment, to make sure that that legacy is maintained. So can't ever rest on your laurels. And as an investor, you can't just assume that because the company has done well in the past and it was something that meant something to you either as a consumer or you did well as an investor in the past, that's going to be how it is in the future. Makes a ton of sense. And where would you direct people for further study on the Disney story? The two books, there's a lot of books, obviously, that have been written on Disney. Two books that I think are good from a business investor standpoint. I referenced one earlier, Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull. Incredible book. I mean, everybody should read it, whether you're interested in Disney or not. And then Ride of a Lifetime, which is Bob Iger's book, that is a really great firsthand account of his experience as CEO. And it goes into a lot of the detail and some of the acquisitions and how they were done. A lot of inside baseball on that if someone's interested. There is a wealth of great information on Disney so people can learn about it. But those are two good resources. Awesome. Well, Ben, it's always a pleasure. This is such a cool company and it was great to do the breakdown with you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Jesse. Happy to be here. To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com. 